All right, good morning. Glad you're here. We hope that you are ready for Christmas. In fact, just by a show of hands, who's all ready for Christmas? You're all done. Let me see your hands. Who has shopping left to do? Let me see your hands. Shopping left to do? Right, right. I used to be a last-minute person. Now I just have Donna do all our shopping for her and me, and it's perfect. It's fourth, fourth Sunday of Advent. You can see the, all four candles are lit. Uh, on, on Friday night, we will light the, the center candle, the Christ candle, the very, very last. We hope, we hope that you are here for that. This series has been a contrast of darkness and light. If, if anything else, we've wanted you to understand how Scripture puts these two things together and why they matter and why we need to be about the business of embracing both. I mean, most of us grew up in churches where darkness was a bad thing or evil or represented the things that we shouldn't be doing. But Scripture doesn't represent darkness that way. In fact, God created the darkness, Scripture says. Uh, God is in the darkness. And when you go through darkness yourself, you need to know that God is present with you right in the middle of it, that he hasn't left you, that he is not distant from you. And if we want to do anything, really, leading up to this fourth Sunday of Advent, it's been to try to help us sort of rethink how we perceive or understand or, or even the baggage we might have regarding darkness and light, especially in this Christian perspective. And so John has helped us do that, the Gospel of John, where he writes this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so we've, if we've learned anything, we've learned this, that darkness and light, they need each other. That with, if you have one without the other, then it's just completely... That. It's just all light, no darkness, and there's no contrast, there's no texture, there's no play off of each other. It doesn't matter which one we're talking about, they, they really need each other. And so we said from the beginning that Advent, our season, welcoming Jesus into the world is it's a journey from darkness to light. And everything about Christmas points us to this idea, this idea that it's a journey from darkness to light. We've talked about the, the darkness creeping in through the Christmas season. In fact, um, this Tuesday, we will have our winter solstice. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Christmas season, in fact, the Christmas day, it is never, it hasn't always been celebrated on December 25th. Now, it has for us, you know, we've been not alive long enough to remember because it was all the way in the first and second centuries that it was a different day. And many different days. In fact, uh, those different days, you guys hear that, by the way? <laughs> yeah, Josh is trying to figure out what it is. It's getting worse. <laughs> so if you're online and you're missing it, then we hear like a, I don't know, a dozen mice squirreling around. <laughs> Or something like that. Josh is, Josh is going to come up and detective it. I don't know. Is that somebody's ringer? Seriously, answer your phone. It does sound like a fan, doesn't it? Could be mice in the duct. It's the Christmas mice. Yeah, it's not a mic. It's not. Yeah, yeah, it's, in the, it's, it's mechanical. I don't know, you think we should still have church? Is it too distracting? I mean, I've been kind of hungry all morning. I could go for a, a pancake right now. 
I mean, I can preach. I could also go for a pancake. Okay, we'll preach. So you might not know this, but Christmas in the first, second centuries, the birth of Jesus was celebrated in, in the spring, in the fall, some in the winter. The, the date was all over the place. It wasn't until the year 336 when Constantine, the emperor of Rome at the time, decided that he would nail it down to December 25th. That's what he picked. And if you read history, depends on which history you read, there's all kinds of reasons why he did what he did and, and how it ended up on December 25th. And nobody really knows for sure why, um, although some people act like they know for sure why. But Constantine did, in fact, as the emperor of Rome, pick that date. Almost every story of history that you read points some way to the winter solstice. And the winter solstice, of course, is an incredible time to think about the birth of Jesus and welcoming him in because darkness has finally creeped in and has had its way with the light, if you will. That's what the winter solstice is about. So our winter solstice this year will happen on Tuesday, the 21st. Now, we have in mind that the winter solstice is all about the longest night of the year. It really isn't. It is a moment in time, often during the day, when the winter solstice occurs. And for us, it will happen at 8.59 Mountain Standard Time a.m. on Tuesday. The longest night? Well, that will happen the night before and often is rivaled by the night after. Not always the case, but that's what's happening this year. And it will be in that moment when the darkness, which has given way to the light, will then start moving the other direction. Our days start to become longer. Our nights start to become shorter. Now, this season is not just a journey from darkness to light. In fact, if you're going to catch anything today, understand this. This season is all about the tension between the darkness and the light. It's not that they're separate or to be considered separate. There's a relationship between the darkness and light, and that tension is deep and it is thick. And it is the case in the Christmas story and in every part of our celebration, and you'll see it unfold right in front of you. When the gospel story begins to be told and the birth of Jesus is about to take center stage, most of the gospel writers don't start with Jesus. They start with the man who had come before Jesus, and his name was... John the Baptist, that's right. It was Zechariah who was told by an angel in the Holy of Holies that he was going to have a son. Him and Elizabeth had given up the hope of having kids. And in the middle of that holy moment in the Holy of Holies with an angel delivering the good news, Zechariah says, I don't believe you. I want proof. And the very beginning of the Christmas story begins with this darkness of an angel striking Zechariah, unable to speak at all. For months, he can't even utter a word this darkness that was, we might call it doubt or unsure. Maybe he just wanted a guarantee since he had an angel in front of him. This darkness was there. We almost didn't even have a holy family if it were up to Joseph before he saw the angel. He had in mind to quietly divorce Mary, and I don't know what it would have been like if that had been the case early on. Not even a chance to celebrate this holy family. I don't know about you, but we have about three nativities in our house in various places. Not one of them give any indication of darkness or trouble of foreboding danger a part of the Christmas story. Not one of them. I bet yours are the same. But there is incredible tension in the Christmas story. I haven't once heard a Christmas sermon that includes the darkest chapter of the entire Christmas story. Herod's 
murderous genocide that is connected to the birth of Jesus, everywhere you look on the pages of Scripture, there is tension between the darkness and the light. And it happens on the very first pages of Scripture, and it goes all the way to the end. In fact, we think that the birth story is really mainly only in Matthew and Luke. We've been using John. He tells a very different version of the birth story. But there's another birth story that happens in the book of Revelation that includes elements that I guarantee aren't a part of your nativity scene, like a dragon and all sorts of things. The tension between darkness and light in this story, nativity, Christmas, Jesus coming, it's deep and it's thick. And it's not just then, it's now too. Of course, of course, it is, in fact, the most wonderful time of the year, right? Of course it is. Some of you are Christmas lovers. How many of you just love Christmas? Let me see your hands. You just love Christmas. And how many of you at the same time think, I don't know, I'm a little iffy on Christmas. Can you say that in church? It's allowed. You're allowed. The Christmas season. I could do without Christmas. Anybody? Anybody want to be bold enough to say that? It is the most wonderful time of the year. But talk to any of our therapists in our church or those who are engaged in any kind of mental health, and they will, they will tell you that beginning in November, that their calendars begin to fill because the darkness begins to creep in. And that was a husband of a therapist. It just laughed. I knew without even looking. Something happens when the days grow shorter. And it's not because of only seasonal affective disorder. It's because the intensity of the holidays and the emotions that are associated with all of the things that we celebrate tend to stir up some of the deepest feelings we have, our history and our family, our stories of origin and our unmet needs and the way God has shown up and maybe some of the ways that we feel he has been absent. And the holidays are tough. Most wonderful time of the year? Absolutely. The hardest time of the year? Well, that goes without saying, especially when you pay attention to the Christmas story in Scripture the story that God is telling from the beginning of time and all of the stories that we enjoy through the Christmas season. It's not just us. It's in every story we see. Your favorite Christmas movie highlights the tension between darkness and light. It doesn't matter whether the story is about Ebenezer Scrooge or Clark Griswold or George Bailey. It doesn't make any difference. There is immense darkness in each story, an incredible epiphany as well. And that makes up everything regarding Christmas culture. And it's even in our Christmas songs, Christmas lyrics. The, the music that you've been listening to since, well, all, all good and thoughtful people don't listen to Christmas music until the day after Thanksgiving. See, some of you aren't good and thoughtful people, I can tell. And you've been playing it early, which is okay during COVID, that's fine. You get all the joy that you can get. But when you pay attention to the Christmas music that we listen to, the tension between darkness and light becomes all the more obvious. Now you will not be able to not see it because it's there. Not the most popular Christmas song ever, but certainly in the top five in terms of historical Christmas songs is this little ditty, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I don't know if you remember the 
when this came on the scene as a song. Some of you will remember it because you're old enough. Um, or maybe you've seen the movie or you know a little bit of trivia. Do you, does anybody know, uh, somebody did in first service, what movie this originated in, where it first became a uh, part of our Christmas celebration? Anybody have an idea? Meet Me in St. Louis. That's right. Great, great old movie. Classic Christmas movie. The, the, the authors of this song were challenged with writing a song that was sad enough to represent the feelings and emotions of a family who was transitioning from their family home to a new place, to a new home. So they were leaving. So the author of the song said, you know, we, we, need, to, we need to characterize this. We need to feel it. This is why when you hear this song, even though it's about Christmas, there's just a part of you, especially if you're in tune to music, you, you feel just a little sad when you hear it. It's got a, just a little sad tone to it. In fact, the authors had written lyrics that were so sad that when Judy Garland, who starred in the movie, Meet Me in St. Louis, was asked to sing it, she read the lyrics and said, I won't sing that. I won't. I won't sing it. It's too sad. It's gone too far. And so the authors began to rewrite some of the Christmas lyrics. Here's one that they rewrote. In the original lyrics from the authors, uh, they had this line. Have yourself, um, yourself a merry little Christmas... <laughs> Just, you know, where's the joy in that, right? It may, it may be your last. So they rewrote that. They rewrote that. That's why you don't know that lyric. It's not in the song anymore. They fixed it. They kind of spruced it up a bit, you know, brightened it up a bit. And Judy Garland said, okay, now I'll sing that. When Frank Sinatra got ready to do his version, he said, it's still too sad. I won't do it. We need to rewrite some of the lyrics. And so the lyric that, that you know is this lyric. Hang a shining star upon the highest bough. Judy Garland did not sing that lyric in the movie. That was not a part of it. The part that she sang that was still too sad for Frank Sinatra was this. Well, from now on, we'll have to muddle through somehow. And some of you think that should totally be in a Christmas song. Right? Absolutely it should. And this is the tension between darkness and light and its presence. And it's there. And for you to know it and see it. Well, when you read the story in Scripture, when you pay attention to Christmas culture, it feels like God was trying to say, I want you to grasp what is going on. I want you to understand what is happening, what I'm doing in terms of his intervention in history, why Jesus had to come. This tension between darkness and light, it's in, it's in the movies, it's in the lyrics. It's in the scriptural story, the biblical record, and it's in us too. Every one of you knows what it feels like when the darkness and the light is fighting in your own heart. Whether selfishness is going to win, whether greed is going to win the day, maybe there's an ebbing or flowing sadness in your life and you're trying to figure out why is it there and why does it seem to come back this time of year and why can certain things, maybe a sight or a smell or a Christmas activity bring about the thing in you that you think shouldn't have anything to do with Christmas? When you read scripture, it's almost as if God wanted to say, look, I need you aware of both the darkness and the light. I want you to be aware of them. And if we're honest, most of us lean pretty hard one way or the other, toward the darkness or toward the light. We have a, a tendency, maybe a, a more natural way to lean. This idea of 
which way we might lean toward the darkness or light. We have a, a preference or you might even call it your default view of life, the way you see the world, whether you lean this way or that way. If we were to ask you, which way do you lean? You would probably have an answer for that. But you probably wouldn't use these words or, or this terminology. We would more likely use this terminology, optimist or pessimist. How many of you would say, if you were to suppose which way you lean, your perspective, darkness or light, or optimist or pessimist, how many of you would say you're probably an optimist? Let me see your hands. Raise them up. Okay, very good. It makes sense that we would have at least a few fewer optimists than in first service because you guys slept in, right? You're like, I'm not going to take the day on. So, but we do have a, a fair number of optimists. How many of you would say, you know, if, if we're going to be honest, I, 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 now look, don't answer for somebody else, okay? That's just not helpful and will ruin your day. How many of you would say, I, I probably lean toward being a pessimist? Let me see your hands. Okay, seriously, we had like three in the first service. But we all know this, that most people who are maybe leaning toward the side of pessimism or being a pessimist, they, they wouldn't even use that word, would they? They don't, they don't like that word. What, what word would they use? Yeah, they would use that word, realist, right? Yeah, right, exactly. And so it really doesn't matter. Whatever labels you use, you probably lean one way or the other. And, and here's the interesting thing, okay? If you're married or you have a significant other, you married the other. Whatever you are, optimist, you probably married a realist and vice versa, okay? And, and this, at least in part, is because, and I don't know why, you need each other. The darkness needs the light, and the light needs the darkness. And if you had a crystal ball and you could see 30 years in the future, you wouldn't have done this. You wouldn't, if, if you use your wisdom, you wouldn't have married the opposite because you would have looked ahead and thought, I, I could do without that friction. <laughs> but God in his wisdom, especially in your adolescent, post-adolescent brain, shielded you from all of that common sense <laughs> and put you in cahoots with somebody who had a different perspective than you. And you know that these are vastly different views of life and the world and how things work. But they're so important. And so you know what this is like. When, when something bad happens to the optimist, they say, you know, well, we're just, we're just get, getting through the rough of it. You know, this is fine. It's going to work out great. And when a pessimist sees something amazing happen, they usually say something like, yeah, but have you, did you know? And they bring this, you know, dark, every cloud has a dark lining, right? And this is the pessimist view. How many of you saw the fireworks in the area last night? How many of you saw the fireworks? Great. So in your family, you knew very quickly who was a pessimist and who was an optimist. When you saw the fireworks, the optimist in the room said, oh my gosh, it's beautiful. Merry Christmas. This is amazing. And the pessimist in the room said, yeah, I can't believe they're wasting money on this. This is ridiculous. Right, Tom? <laughs> right. Absolutely. We saw it and the fireworks are going off near our house and all of a sudden one lands on the little mason near our house and a fire breaks out. And the pessimists say, you know, see, I mean, this is what happens. This is what happens. <laughs> We try to celebrate. The optimist said, but it's so pretty. It's so pretty. Look at the fire blaze. It's beautiful. <laughs> now, in most Christian circles, there's usually one that is preferred over the other. 
and one that is highlighted over the other. It depends on the Christian circle that you're in. If you grew up in a Reformed church, a church that is more conservative in nature, Reformed or Calvinistic theology, then you were taught a view, a lens, a a perspective that is more realist or pessimistic. How many of you have seen the movie River Runs Through It? How many of you have seen that? It's a true story. Norman MacLean is a memoir of his life and growing up. What you might remember is that Norman MacLean um, grew up in the Montana area. His dad was a preacher. True story. His dad was a preacher. He describes him as a Scot and a Presbyterian which meant that he was Calvinist in his theology. And that not mean, might not mean much to you, but one of the first tenets of Calvinism, and Norman McLean says this, my dad believed that man, almost a quote from the book, that man was a mess and his fall from grace. And so the Calvinists believe in what they call, the technical term, total depravity. Does that sound like an optimist to you? <laughs> no, of course. And the, the Calvinists believe this and This reformed theology works its way into your understanding of life in the world. The realist says, this is how it is. Look around. Of course, that's a thing, total depravity. Of course, people are like this. Have you read the headlines? Have you seen the movies? You watch true crime stuff? My goodness sakes, it doesn't take long for you to think. It's a wonder anybody finds their way to doing something that's good and hopeful and beneficial for others. And this would be the realist talking. Realist, by the way, believe that they are optimists with experience. That's what they believe. And if that's your perspective, then you know exactly that resonates with you. Optimists, however, they're filled. Churches are filled with optimists. Because most churches, if you're not Reformed or Calvinist, you have this perspective that God is in charge. He has given us the victory. He has won all things. All things are good. God is good. What? The realist says, nah, about a half the time, maybe. But the optimist says, no, that's not true. God is good all the time. I have a, a friend that grew up in a charismatic church. And in the charismatic world, it, it draws optimists into their fellowship. And so when he was little, he, he'd get a sniffle and he'd wipe his nose and he'd sneeze. And he would say, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, he would say, I feel like I'm about to catch a cold. Well, you can't say that among charismatic circles. That's like inviting the cold into your world. And so he was taught as a young man when he would sneeze or get a sniffle, he would say, you know, he was about to say that and his parents would say, don't say you're about to catch a cold. Here's what you need to say instead. You need to say, I'm about to catch a healing. That's what you say. <laughs> and so he would sneeze and wipe his nose and that's what he'd say. I'm about to catch a healing. That's the optimist among us, right? And this picture of what it means to be a realist or an optimist, whichever one that you are, doesn't matter. Half of it's your upbringing, half of it's your inner wiring, nature, nurture, leave that for another day. Whichever you are, Advent is a time for you to lean against your nature. It is a time for you to consider the other side. And we spent two weeks helping to sort of demystify the darkness and for you not to be afraid of the dark and not believe that it's all evil. And if you're an optimist, the hope would be that you have embraced that understanding and idea and you're willing to deal with the realist way, the darkness that's on your side. That's the hope. Why would you want to do that? 
Well, I mean, it is true that, that God is in control and that he is good all the time and that he gives us the victory. That is absolutely true. But what is also true is that we have within us an understanding of the darkness in our own experience. And for you to embrace what is dark in you or about you and not embrace it as in accept it and allow it to be and not even deal with it. But if you cannot begin to take a look at that side of the equation, then the problems that list, that lurk on this side of being a realist, the problems that are there will show up on the day that you least expect them. And you will have not been able to thoughtfully and carefully understand your doubt, your fear, your greed, your selfishness, the optimist that's willing to face their depression or sadness, they find that even in facing it, it leads them into the arms of God. And some of you are, are realists, pessimists, and, or optimists with experience, and you believe you bring a bit of sobriety or thoughtfulness or you know, seriousness to the occasion. You help people see things that they should see. And while that's true, maybe the truth that God is in fact redeeming all things, that he is making all things new, that the light does shine into the darkness, but the darkness will not overcome it, is the very thing that you need to actually find hope once again in your heart. We have to lean the other direction. Which way do you need to lean? No, probably a good discussion at lunch or over dinner is, well, I'm not sure I know myself, family. I bet you can help me with that. Which way do I lean? And what would it mean to lean that direction this Advent season? It could be all that's waiting for you is the hope that God wants to plant deep within your heart or the understanding that your darkness, even though you face it, it will not consume you. But not facing it, it just might. Like we said, this story, this tension between darkness and light is from the very first pages of Scripture. In fact, Genesis opens just like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and the earth was what? What was the earth? Formless and empty. And it had darkness. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Don't miss the details. Darkness was there, but who was there? God was there. His presence was there, even in the darkness. And in that deep darkness, before anything was made, before anything was created, and God said, let's say it all together, let there be light. And there was, and there was light. And that light was God. Now, I don't know if you know the creation story well enough to know when things were created and on which days, but this moment in creation occurs before the sun is created. It occurs before the stars or the moon or any of the heavenly bodies are created. So you have to ask the question, where is the light coming from? It is God himself. Him and him alone. He is the light. He's present in the darkness, 
and in him there is no darkness at all. This tension between darkness and light is the one that all thoughtful, diligent, sincere followers of Jesus have to face. And God is inviting you into that tension this Advent season. And I know if you're like me, you'll do anything to rid yourself of the tension. It's so hard to live in the tension. It's so hard, if you're an optimist, to lean toward the darkness that's in your heart. It feels like it's, it's counterproductive. It feels almost unholy and vice versa. If you're a realist and you know, you've got a bunch of Pollyanna people who won't even read the news around you, it's very hard for you to lean into the hope that God wants to give you. But I promise you this, the tension is what will propel you deeper and further in your walk with Jesus. What is it that you need to face? And may God give us the courage, regardless of the season that you're in right now. So let me guide you through a prayer, and the team's going to give us some lyrics and some thoughts and a a beautiful song that will help us uh, reflect on all this. Lord, we come to you now as a church family, here in this place and online at home. And we ask that you would meet us in our darkness and that, Lord, you would bring your light that is no artificial sense of light. It comes from you and you alone. So are those here in this place that need to lean a bit toward the darkness, I pray that you give them the courage to do so. For every impulse inside of us fights against it. But you're inviting us there to find freedom, to find perspective, to maybe face something that is already within us that you already know about, Lord. And sometimes, Lord, you just want us to come to you open-handedly and acknowledge it. So for us optimists in the room, Lord, give us the courage to be thoughtful and reflective. Lord, during this season, there are many of us that struggle on the other side of the coin. We're not sure why. We're not sure what causes our thoughts to turn more uh, hopeless. But the state of the world around us the direction of life and culture. For some of us, it feels inescapable. Uh, Hope or optimism feels like a, a distant destination. So as those of us who struggle in that way, lean towards the light, help us to cling to the promises of Scripture that in our darkness you are present, but you beckon us to believe in a hope that is firm and secure, that you in fact are making all things new, that you are redeeming all things. So we, we claim these promises even though our feelings aren't there yet. And we trust you, whether in light or in darkness, that your presence will guide us. And so whatever season we're in right now, even if it's winter, even if our hearts and minds mirror the the lengthening nights of winter. Give us the patience to watch you grow in us. 
So now, Lord, in these few moments, give us a, just give us a moment or two to reflect on your love and your mercy, the way you guide us and lead us and cause us to grow.